you would please turn your Bibles again to the book of Galatians and the fourth chapter. We're going to be talking this morning about a doctrine in the church called adoption. And what we see in this text really is the very purpose uh, of Christ coming into the world, the end, if you will, of the Lord Jesus coming into the world. So please turn to Galatians and the fourth chapter and stand for the reading of God's word this morning. I want to read different passages. One, chapter 3 and verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And then to 3 and verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. That's the doctrine of adoption. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ, and this is not not talking about water baptism, it's talking about faith, uh, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ and you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to your works. That's not what it says. Heirs according to promise. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That is, the Gentiles trying to be saved through following their pagan religion. The Jews, depending on the law and the keeping of the law, uh, for having a right relationship with God. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the Spirit Have your son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to prayer. Pray for me as I preach this text. Pray for yourselves as you sit under the proclamation of God's word this morning. Let's pray. God and Heavenly Father, we bow before you, recognizing that we are not sufficient of ourselves to comprehend and certainly not sufficient to apply these things to our hearts, to our minds, to bring forth change. We depend upon you, O our God. 
Father, be with me as I preach this text. Be with your people as they sit under the proclamation of your word this morning. That it might be, O oh God, for our spiritual benefit. We pray, O oh Lord, we plead. If any are here outside of faith, any here dependent upon their works, as these people were in the days that Paul wrote this letter, we ask you to open up their eyes, uh, grant, O oh God, understanding, and grant, O oh Lord, true repentance to them, that they may embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as he is offered to them in the gospel. Our Lord and our God, we pray that you would be with us and bless us with your grace. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to start this morning a little different than I normally do. That is, I'm going to ask for a participation, group participation. Don't you hate that? I hate that when they do that to me. I don't want to be participating in anything. I go to watch people, not to be participating. But you can sit right in your seat to participate. I don't want anybody coming up here. I don't want that at all. But I want to ask you a question. Can you think of a time in your life when you got a present and it was the best present you have ever received, whether in birthday, just because I love your present, Christmas, whatever the case may happen to be. I want you to think a minute and see if you can bring forth a gift you got that stands out in your mind and you absolutely loved it and you still think about it. One Christmas morning, Johnny got a set of drums. And he loved those drums, and he played those drums. You can hear him banging on those drums. And I asked him about two years ago, can you think of a present that you got that just was something you really, really loved, and you still think about it? He said, the drums. Okay. Uh, there was a fabricated group in the 1960s called the Monkees. were a bunch of actors they put together to play parts in a television show called the Monkees. They were singers. They weren't really musicians. Um, one of them, like Mike Nesmith, probably had the most uh, natural talent for music. But uh, they were popular. One birthday, Melinda got not one but two Monkees albums. She was so happy, she cried. She still talks about it. I gather those albums meant a whole lot to her because she still is touched by thinking about those albums by the Monkees. It was kind of an imitation of the Beatles. They were not anything like the Beatles. Not even close to it. But in the text, Paul talks about a gift that has been given to us that should be, in your mind, if you understand it, the greatest gift you have ever received in your life because it is the gift of life that God has given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christmas story is a story of grace from beginning to end. It is the story of God's grace. And see this this morning as we look through these verses. That because God has adopted us into his family as his beloved children, we can with certainty look forward to an inheritance that God has for us that is everlasting. Three things this morning. We're not going to get out of here at 12 o'clock, so don't look at your clock thinking we are. We're not. It's a quarter till. You ain't quitting at 12 o'clock. So hopefully it'll be worth your while. Three things this morning. The believer's adoption is proof positive of his conversion. Second thing is the believer's um, adoption is proof positive of a familiar relationship with God. 
The third thing is, which we'll not have time to look at this one, but we'll mention it, that the believer's adoption proves proof positive of a heavenly inheritance. The first thing, then, that our adopt, the believer's adoption is proof positive of his conversion. The Apostle Paul, as you remember from last Lord's Day, I'm sure, is seeking to prove to these Galatians that they are saved on the basis not of things they have done or could possibly ever do. They are saved on the basis of the work of God, only on the work of God. It's a mystery all, is it not? That God would create a world, that God would ordain the fall, and then God would ordain the means whereby those who had no help and were destined for hell would be saved and brought out of that situation, not simply to be saved from condemnation, but actually to be Children of God. Galatians 3, 11 and 12. For all who rely on the works of the law were under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. So then, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith. There's that quote again from Habakkuk 2, 4. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. The problem is... That we cannot live by the law. We cannot do the deeds of the law. Consider the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. Who here has kept that law? Who here can claim this? I have never, ever put my own self-interest before God's. Ever. I have always put God first. I have always lived my life in such a way that I want to please God more than anything else. I have always loved the Lord my God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my strength, with all of my mind, always. I am not guilty of having other gods before the God of the Bible. And I will tell you, yes, you are guilty of this law. You've broken this law. You've had idols in your life. Whether it was an object, whether it was a person, whether it was an event, whatever it may happen to be, that that was number one in your life at a particular time. We've all done that. So as you look at these laws and you think about these Ten Commandments, you recognize that you simply cannot keep them. It is impossible for you to keep the law. Well, what's the penalty for breaking the law? Well, it's death. So that by nature then, the way that we are, the way that we're born... Uh, apart from the grace of God, we stand under God's wrath and condemnation, and the verdict upon us is guilty and deserving of death. We can't keep them. No one does this. No one does. No one keeps any of the laws. We uh, break all of them in one degree or another. And if you say salvation depends upon my efforts as well as the work of Christ, then again, you have condemned everyone to hell. Why? Because we are all lawbreakers. And whoever keeps the law must keep the entirety of the law. Not simply physically, but in thought as well. So we stand condemned before God. The gavel has been put down and the sentence has been given. Guilty as charged. The sentence is death. That's the Bible. That's not me sitting up here trying to be in any way um, dramatic. That's the Bible. 
Well, the solution then is given to us in the text here, and we see that God took the initiative. Coming to the fact of the greatest present ever given to us, God took the initiative. We read in the text this, that Christ was born at the exact time as predetermined by God. He was born in the fullness of time. Uh, he was born of a woman. This speaks of his true humanity. That what can be truly said of any individual could have been said about the Lord Jesus Christ. Say for one thing, he had no sin. Uh, did he hurt if he hit him his thumb with a hammer when he was working as a carpenter? Sure he did. Did he bleed if he cut himself with some sort of object? Sure he did. And did it hurt him when his friends deserted him? Sure it did. They crushed him. Just as it would crush you. Jesus was not a stoic. Did it weigh him down with great dread as he thought about going to the cross of Calvary in the garden? And the answer to that is yes. We read his sweat became like great drops of blood. As he prayed not once and not twice, but three times this prayer. Father, if there is any way this cup of suffering any way at all, I can bypass this. Any way that redemption can be accomplished without me having to go through the hell I'm going to have to go through on the cross, then let's do it that way. But you know what he said every single time he couched his prayer with this statement, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's a hard thing to say. If you're honest, that's a hard thing to say when you're praying. Lord, I want this. I really, really want this. I want this so badly. But, Lord, I don't want it more than, than uh, I want your will more than mine. So not my will, O oh God, but yours be done. Can you imagine praying that at the bedside of a child? Of your child who's afflicted with a disease? And you're pleading for their life? And you couch that in sincerity by saying this, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That is absolute, unadulterated faith and trust in God expressed in those words. And that's what we see in the part of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolute, unadulterated faith and trust in the Father. Born at the right time. Born of a woman. Born under the law. Being subjected to the law that he had to keep it. He had to keep it perfectly. He had to keep it entirely. Every aspect of it, Christ had to keep it. Which he did. Reading the scriptures, there was no sin in him whatsoever. And then born to redeem a people who were under the law. And so that that condemnation that was upon the people might be removed from them because Christ suffered in our place on the cross of Calvary. It says here that he was to redeem a people. And we read in the text here, to redeem those who were under the law. Now, what does it mean to redeem? Well, uh, the Greek word means to buy something out of, to purchase something, such as you go into the store to buy out. Or purchase. You can use the same word of a slave. 
that someone buys a slave from someone else in order to give them their freedom. You redeem them. Well, that's what Christ has done for us. Again, Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. That's the cross. That's in the Old Testament. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. There's the gospel. There is the message of Christmas. In Colossians chapter 2, if I may read that to you, verses 13 and 14 from the second chapter of Colossians. Uh, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcised, uh, uncircumcision of your heart, God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's the law. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities that put them to open shame by putting them to open shame and triumphing over them in him. So here's the law of God. Here's his pronouncements. Here's his verdict upon the world, which is guilty. Here's the accuser, Satan who says to God, this one is guilty. <laughs> he's guilty, and you know he's guilty. When he says here, Christ put him to open shame by nailing the law in his condemnation upon the cross of Calvary. In other words, he took the power of the law away by going to the cross of Calvary. And so now he kept the demands of the law. He took the penalty of the law upon himself so that we will not have to face that judgment. And in Christ, you see, we are righteous. As it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Well, how are we saved? How does this benefit become ours? Well, it's in, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work for us on the cross of Calvary. What must we do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, we read in the scriptures. What a simple thing. Alistair Begg, uh, in one of his sermons, in one of these texts, I can't remember which one it was, said this. That there are people who Sunday after Sunday after Sunday go and sit in worship and become more and more burdened as they hear the word of God preached. Weighed down with guilt because they are trying to earn their way to heaven by obedience. And he says it becomes heavier and heavier upon them because they fail to know. The grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the law, you see, was given not so we can earn our way to heaven. The law was given to drive us to Christ. As we look at that law, and if we're honest with ourselves, recognize we are lawbreakers and we stand condemned before God, that drives us, should not drive us to despair, but it should drive us to Christ. Because he kept the law for us. That's not to say that we ignore the law. We're not antinomian. 
That's not to say that God doesn't care how you live your life. He does. Jesus said very plainly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's an evidence that I'm sincere about my faith. I'm sincere about following after Christ. I fail and I fail and I fail, but I'm not quitting. As I continue on, you see. This morning, as soon as we talked about the book of Hebrews, talks about taking heed to yourself. The day is going to come when you're going to stand before God and give an account for the deeds under the body, whether good or bad, according to what the Bible teaches us. I don't care what you believe. I don't care what you think. I don't care how you reason yourself out of it. The reality is that's what's going to happen. And for those who are outside of faith in Jesus Christ, it's going to be a bleak future. Not for tomorrow, not for a day or two, but for all eternity. And the only presence of God in hell is the presence of the burning conscience that's experiencing the wrath of God for sin. We were never, ever intended to be saved by keeping the law. We were saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the law drives us to Jesus. So this certainty of our adoption, this confidence of our being adopted and of our having life, second place speaks of our being children of God. We have this great gift of Jesus, the gift of his birth, the gift of his keeping the law, the gift of his ministry, the gift of his sacrifice, the gift of his resurrection, the gift of the application of that, the gift of God's grace. And the end of work. But the goal of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is written right here in the text. That we might receive adoption. Don't let that just pass over you like it doesn't mean anything. The Bible is full of words, and those words have meaning. They are significant. That we might receive adoption. What in the world does that mean? It means that not only has God saved you, not only has God rescued you from wrath and condemnation, God has also brought you into his family. To have a close family is a blessing. It is a very, very rich blessing that God gives to have a close family. To have a father that loves you and you know that love. It's a blessing. And yet fathers make mistakes. Fathers mess up. Because fathers are sinners. They mess up. But God never, ever messes up. Our adoption into the family of God, by God's grace, is proof that we have a filial relationship with God. That he is indeed our father. 
So we deal with here, you see, this business of universal fatherhood of God. It's not true. God is not the father of every individual that has ever been born or ever will be born. Not according to this text. He is the owner of all things. He is the ruler of all things. But this text tells us that Christ came in order that we might receive adoption as sons. So apart from the work of Jesus, there's no adoption. There's no being a part of the family of God. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, men and women and children by nature are born uh, estranged from God. And you may not want to hear this, but the reality is we are born as citizens of the kingdom of hell. That's the reality of it. You see, there's no fence straddling. That I'm on the fence, and over here is God's kingdom, over here is Satan's kingdom. I'm, in, I'm not in either one of them. I beg to differ, you are in one of them. And by nature, apart from the work of God's grace, understand, apart from the work of God's grace, we are born as citizens of... The kingdom of hell. Your father, listen to this, your father is the devil. Why do I say that? Well, listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verses 39 through 44. John chapter 8, verses 39 through 44. I'll give you the context here. Uh, Christ is speaking. There's a bunch of Pharisees there. This is one of the texts we have the great I am passages where Christ is claiming to be divine. Before Abraham was, I am. When he says that, they try to kill him. Because they understand what it is. He's making himself equal to God. But starting in verse um, uh, 39 of, of, Roman, of, I'm sorry, of John in the 8th chapter, uh, we read this. John chapter 8, starting in verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. This is the Pharisees. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children... Uh, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me. A man who has told the truth I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Uh, you are doing the works of your fa- what your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual morality. You see what they're doing here? You see what they're doing here? We're not born of sexual immorality. You were. We know your mother was not married when you were conceived. We know that. You are an immoral of an immoral woman. We were not born that way. You were. Don't let that slip by you. We're not born of sexual morality, but you are. And we continue on. Um, we have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, then you would love me. For I came from God. I am here. I came not by my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Uh, think about these guys. These guys were the creme de la creme of self-righteousness. They were the leaders in Jerusalem. They were the preachers. They were dignified. They were quite righteous. Uh, Very fine men they were as they kept the law, as they did all the things that they were supposed to do according to their own imagination. They had laws where there were no laws existing. Because, you see, God's laws, well, they weren't just strict enough. They were more righteous than that. So they created laws. And Christ tells them here, you 
who think you're so righteous. You're of your father, the devil. That's who your, your father is. Not Abraham's God, not Abraham's father. You are of your father, the devil, because they refuse to accept the great gift of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. These men were quick to condemn. Self-righteous people are always like that. Self-righteous people always are quick to condemn others. They make judgments about them without any evidence whatsoever. They make judgments about other people that are very superficial. They judge their clothes. They judge what they do. They judge what they say. All the while, what they're saying is often so often a matter of liberty in Christ. And yet they make judgments because, you see, they're righteous in and of themselves. They are self-righteous individuals. And so they condemn. That's what these Pharisees were like. And they were of their father, the devil. That is the natural individual. But here, you see, we read in the Bible that we are sons of God. We are his children by adoption. What is adoption? Adoption is a work of God's grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the children of God. That's the little catechism's answer. We are brought into the number, of the number of the redeemed. We have rights as God's children and privileges as God's children. Well, what are those rights and what are some of those privileges then? Well, for one thing, the right to be called a child of God. That's a blessing. That's a great blessing. That identifies who you are. Look, what you do does not what you do for a living does not identify you. My living is preaching and ministering the word of God, teaching, pastoring people. That's my job. It doesn't identify me. Some people's job is in business. And some are quite successful in business. It does not identify them. Some people are football coaches. It does not identify them. What identifies them is who they are in Christ. I am a child of God. That trumps everything. God is my father. I was born... Um, I mean, uh, I was, uh, by God's providence, although we didn't benefit, Melinda did not benefit from us, her uncle owned the Coca-Cola company in Hattiesburg. He owned another one in uh, wherever Bacardi's made. I can't remember the the rum, the brew Bacardi, wherever that is. He owned a Coca-Cola company there, too. He also owned a meatpacking company. He had a nice boat, a nice boat. It was called a yacht. I got to go on that boat one time. Went out to Ship Island. Ship Island's about 12 miles off the coast of Gulfport, Mississippi. I sat on the back of the boat, and I was eating my lunch out of the box. The guy said, you got a nice boat? I said, thank you. Wasn't my boat. I didn't tell him that. He just said, you got a nice boat? I said, thank you. Very, very nice boat. Had an airplane. A very, very nice airplane. All of these things. Now, when he died, I didn't get anything. I got nothing. I got to enjoy him when he was alive, but when Dick passed on, I wasn't one of his heirs. Imagine someone that is very, very, very wealthy with a hundred and some odd foot boat with houses in several cities in different countries. 
And he has all these things, and he's not in debt. Matter of fact, he's got millions left in the accounts that are just sitting there earning money. And I go up to somebody, the captain, I said, I permission to come on board. He says, no. Why? And I would do that. I would say, why? I did that one time. I want to come on board. There was a huge boat. I want to come on board and look at it. The guy said, no. I said, why? He said, because somebody hasn't rented. You can't come on it. Okay. That was enough said. That was enough. So I left it alone. But if I had been adopted into that family, and I came up to the captain, and I wouldn't ask permission. I would just say, I'm coming on board. Come right ahead. It's yours, as a matter of fact. Come right on ahead. All the things of the world like that, as wonderful as they are, and I love boats. I love them. I love the ocean. I love nice things. But they're destined to ruin. They're destined to be uh, uh, on the ash heap, if you will, in time. The inheritance that we have in God, in Christ Jesus, is, listen to this, is eternal life. Is life in heaven spent with Christ and the company of the redeemed forever. Is being able to enjoy benefits that we can't begin to imagine how great they are. Don't exchange what is truly valuable for junk that you love so much you don't have time for Christ. It's coming to ruin anyway. And don't love the things here so much that you're greedy. And you're seeing somebody starve to death and depart with anything. No, that's not right. That's not right at all. Who identifies you? I am a child of God. What is my calling to glorify him and to please him and to enjoy him in my life? That's all made possible. Because of, in the fullness of time, Christ came, born of a woman, born under the law, and might redeem those who are under the law. And so now you see, when God looks at us and the gavel comes down, he says, not guilty. You're my child. And he loves us more than we can ever think or imagine according to the scriptures. And all of these great blessings are ours because if you're a Christian, you're his child. Perfect father. Perfect home and glory. Let's pray.